civil war in Israel that divided the nation into two kingdoms, uh, north and south. The north was just called Israel or Ephraim or Ephraim uh, for the most dominant northern tribe, and then Judah was the moniker for the southern kingdom. So the first three chapters of Hosea are his own life story. God had Hosea live out or reenact God's faithful love for his unfaithful people by having Hosea marry a woman named Gomer, who is a serial adulteress. And even after she abandoned him, Hosea went so far as to buy her back or redeem her out of what seemed to be some sort of sex slavery. And all this was to foreshadow what God would do for his people through the coming of the promised Messiah, that one day he would buy them back from their slavery to sin and their slavery to other gods. So chapters one through three of Hosea, they tell the big picture story of what God was up to with the people of Israel, of his overwhelming, redeeming, faithful love for them. But then when you start reading chapter four and onward through the book, uh, which you heard portions of it read just now, the book returns to the current situation with Israel. And it tells of God's deep frustration with his people. And so it can be kind of disorienting when you read through the whole book. You begin to wonder, so what's actually going to happen here? Is God going to forgive his people or is he going to destroy them? <laughs> which, which is it going to be? Will he exact justice or will he show mercy? You hear the frustration come out in uh, like chapter 6, verse 4. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And anyone who's ever loved someone, uh, perhaps a stubbornly wayward son or daughter or spouse who just refuses to change, when you've pleaded and pleaded and argued and tried your best to persuade someone to step away from a destructive path, all to no avail, what do you do? What do you do next? What will God do? Well, in these chapters, we basically see God take his bride to court. And it's messy. It's messy when the courts get involved in things that are deeply personal. If you've ever seen or been part of like a public court divorce hearing or a lawsuit, I'm truly sorry because it can get really messy. It can be embarrassing as private and personal details are dragged out for this whole room of people to listen to. I mean, you might even think of the high-profile celebrity couple case that's on the front page of all the news websites and on every YouTube homepage right now. I'll refrain from saying their names, though you likely know who it is, because millions of people want to know all the nitty-gritty details of their relationship, and they are getting them. You know, secret recordings of heated arguments, embarrassing disclosures, intimate betrayal. It is all out there for the world to see. So what charges does God bring against his bride, his people? Several of them. It starts in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy, or this is a loss, this word means lawsuit or a charge with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. This is charge number one. You don't love me. When God has a bone, his first bone to pick with his people, it's simply that they don't love him. There's no faithfulness to him. 
no steadfast love. And this says a lot, you know, about our understanding of God and what he wants from us. Because there's a way of thinking about God that, you know, he mostly has a set of rules for us to follow. He's interested in you keeping the rules. And as long as you don't cause too much trouble, you know, uh, he's happy to leave you alone and let you do your thing. He's mostly concerned, you know, about your morality. You know, have, you, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted? Check, check, check. Oh, okay. Well, you've broken God's laws and you've sinned and you deserve judgment, which is technically right, I suppose. But this passage shows us that sin to God is fundamentally much more than just immorality. Sin is first and foremost infidelity. Sin at its core is spiritual adultery towards God. It's an inward aversion to him, a disinterest in him, a lack of love for him, our true husband, a general disposition towards God that's cold, apathetic, maybe even spiteful. And this is what the Bible also calls idolatry, taking something other than God as your most precious and beloved. The reformer Martin Luther defined it like this, idolatry or a God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your God. Or Tim Keller has a more modern way of saying it. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There's a reason why the first commandment, you must not have any other gods besides me, is the first commandment. God is first and foremost interested in our love. So this is his first charge against his people, Israel. You don't love me. And then he goes on with his second charge, still in verse 1, charge number 2. You don't know me. He says there's no knowledge of God in the land. And the people know all about Baal and all about Baal worship and how to carry out Baal sacrifices. You heard this in verses uh, 12 through 13 of chapter 4. My people inquire of a piece of wood. Their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They've left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains, burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. So these people have become Baal experts, but they don't know the Lord. They believe wrong things about him. They don't talk with him. They don't pray to him. They don't listen to him or seek him out. So their sin is not just one of infidelity. It's also one of ignorance, willful, willful ignorance and neglect of God. They've chosen to become an expert in everything and anything except for him. And all that leads to his third charge. Number three, you don't obey me. The result of all their infidelity and ignorance is now their immorality. They break his commands. Verse 2, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. 
So one by one, the people disregard God's most central commands. Notice how this list sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments. And it spills over into a broken relationship with one another. And so the Lord is just laying it all out there in the courtroom. He's exposing the deeds and the words for the people of, for what they are. Playing the recording of their lives on a loudspeaker for the whole nation to hear. Now at this point in the courtroom, there seems to be an objection that pops up. Perhaps from one of the priests. You know, one of the priests might say, oh yes, these stubborn people of Israel, we try to teach them your ways, God, but they just keep turning astray. But God overrules the objection before it even gets started. And he responds with a fourth charge against the priests themselves. Chapter 4, verse 4. He says, let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. So maybe the spiritual leaders of Israel started to point their fingers at the rest of the group. But here, God lays the responsibility for the languishing state of his people most heavily at the feet of the religious leaders, the priests, the prophets. They had rejected knowing God. They didn't teach true things about him. They did not model a life of fellowship with God. And so like priests, like people, the speed of the leader was the speed of the team. And this is a fearful warning for those of us who lead or who are preparing to lead the church in some way. That the state of the church, her health and vitality is at some level our responsibility. And plus, if you think of all Christians as those who serve as priests in a way, representing Christ to the world around them, this warning is for all of us who name the name of Christ. This is why Paul tells young Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and on your teaching. If you're a leader in this church, or if you're preparing to lead the church in some way, are you keeping a close watch on your life, on your knowledge of God, of how you model knowing him for others? If you represent Christ to those around you, if you name the name of Christ, can people say, they know God? May God have mercy on us, on all who undertake this. Now, after God's charge to the leaders, he brings a fifth charge. Interestingly, against the men of Israel. Listen to 12, 13 again, and then 14. He says, my people inquire of a piece of wood. Their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They've left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore. Your brides commit adultery. Yet I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Okay, so the book of Hosea has often come under fire for being misogynistic or seen as anti-women. You know, because of the pervasive imagery of prostitution 
uh, the bad rap of Gomer, the unfaithful bride, and the harsh language of chapter 2 when it speaks of Israel's punishment for unfaithfulness to God. If you remember that section, it was pretty tough from the first, the first week. But to take Hosea's message as anti-women is to miss the point of the metaphor and the context of the book entirely. Because it seems here from this passage that God is most irate with the men of Israel, not loose women generally. So like one of the reasons that he leans so heavily on the metaphor of an unfaithful bride is to get the attention of the men. Think about it. If you call a woman a whore, that is a shameful insult. If you call a man a whore, you've got a fight on your hands because it will get his attention. The scholars like James Lindbergh point out that the sexual promiscuity of Israel was not just some sort of Woodstock free-for-all, but it was tethered to, to the mythology of Baalism. And Baal worship supposed that each winter, the god Baal would die and descend to the underworld. While there, he would find a mate, have sex, and the result would be rain and sunshine and crop growth as nature emerged from winter. So then Baal worship imitated this pattern by having women serve as cult prostitutes with whom the men of Israel could go reenact Baal's quest and even help Baal along in restoring fertility to the land. Which I know sounds a little bizarre, right? But isn't it true that all of our sexual practices are always linked to our beliefs about the sacred? Even Christian beliefs, you know, about monogamy and marital faithfulness, they're based on a belief about Christ and his faithfulness to his church. So our sexuality is always a reflection of our beliefs. What we do with our bodies always reveals what we believe about our souls. But my point in bringing all this up is just that the pagan idol worship of Baal led the Israelite men to set up this whole arrangement of cultic prostitution. They designed the system, and back then, just as now, their sexual demands served as the fuel for the degradation of women. So far from being a misogynistic book, the sting of the metaphor of Israel as an adulteress in Hosea is actually aimed most centrally at the men. So guys, let me speak to you as men for a moment. When we worship at the feet of other gods, eventually the women around us will always suffer for it. As men, your walk with God matters. Your initiative in loving, serving, and supporting the women in your life and in this church really matters. The church needs your gentle strength, your fatherly example. We will suffer without it. So when we sound the call to serve the children of our church, as we will soon, when we sound the call to pray in our church, when we sound the call to pray in your home, are you first in line or are you being dragged along? And men, if you feel inadequate in these kinds of matters, which I know many, of, many men do, we can feel so successful in our work, in our business, and yet in leading our homes and our churches, we can feel so inadequate. Let me encourage you to reach out for help. Get in touch with a pastor or an elder. This is literally what we're here for. With another man in the church that you respect. Someone who could mentor you 
in living for Christ and serving those in your home and under your care. No man who does well at this started by being good at this. We all need help. So God continues with his charges. This time a charge against the very hearts of Israel. Chapter five, I think we're in verse four. He says, their deeds don't permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them. They know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. For he has withdrawn from them. In other words, their problem runs really, really deep. They don't even have it within themselves to return to the Lord. They don't have any interest in doing so. Their hearts are harlot-hardened. No passion is left for their first love. They're too proud, too proud to go home to their true husband. And it sounds like Israel still goes through some religious motions, bringing flocks and herds and sacrifice, but not their hearts, which was the only thing God really wanted in the first place. Chapter six, remember he said, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then lastly, God gives one final seventh charge against Israel, the charge of turning to another king, to another nation for help in their trouble. Chapter 5, verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. So it's not like the people of Israel don't realize that something is wrong in their country. They're experiencing incredible decay in their land, increasing military instability, and the threat of invasion always looms over them. They did not have the might to resist the superpowers of their day. But turn to the Lord? No, 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 no. Their motto was, if you can't beat them, join them. So we'll go to Assyria for protection. But God says this will not do. Assyria cannot save you, cannot heal you, and Assyria will eventually turn on them and enslave them. So these are all the charges that God lays out in these chapters against his people, one after the other. And we left about half of them unread. The court has heard all the shocking inside scoop of all Israel's unfaithfulness. So how will God rule? How will he react to the charges? What's his verdict going to be against these people? Chapter 5, verse 14. I will be like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. (laughs) Okay, at first glance, this does not sound good. God says, I will be like a lion who strikes and carries off his prey to his lair. Great pain is coming for Israel. They're going to be given over to their enemies, defeated and exiled. They are going to be torn, slashed open. And yet... There is hope here. God doesn't leave his people in the dark as to why he is striking them. 
Hosea says that he tears them so that he may truly heal them. If you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, you can't help but think of the scene where the insolent boy, Eustace, is transformed into a dragon through his greedily taking of an enchanted golden bracelet. You know, and Eustace is wounded by the bracelet, and now, because he's a dragon, he can't get it, get it off. And uh, the bracelet festers deeper and deeper into his skin, and he tries to shed the dragon layers by scratching them off, but each time he rips off his scales, they only grow back, just as thick and scaly as they were before. And it's then that the lion, Aslan, appears and tells Eustace to lie down and that he will have to remove the dragon skin with his great lion claws himself. So Eustace says in the book, he said, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been, Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You see, the great lion will use his claws, but it's only to remove something far more deadly dark, knobbly looking than any pain that he might inflict upon us. Author Marshall Seagal writes, the lavish love of God for us often hurts in this life. Sometimes the love we need most is the love we want least. The love feels so harsh, so blunt, so unpleasant in the moment we don't even recognize it as love. Now, I do want to nuance this carefully, though, and say that not all suffering or hardship can or should be interpreted as chastisement for our own sin or as if God has it out for you. But what I think that Hosea can teach us is that if and when God must chastise us, it is to rid us of things inside of us that would harm us in a far deadlier way. He tears us so that he might heal us. Now, from the outside looking in, though, this kind of severe mercy can seem so very harsh, so unfair, and so unloving. Southeastern professor Ross Inman, who's a friend who goes over to Exchange Church, um, he cites a thought experiment by philosopher Eleanor Stump that I find helpful, though odd. You'll catch the drift in a minute. Uh, Ross writes, imagine a group of Martians whose sole knowledge of human life on earth stems from video footage of hospital medical procedures. These Martians observe doctors amputating limbs, cutting out human organs, and administering drugs that cause grave pain and suffering. They witness patient after patient groaning in severe pain, along with the accompanying grief, anxiety, and tears of their loved ones. The Martians will no doubt be filled with moral indignation at the medical doctors who bring about or allow such horrendous pain and suffering to continue. Any hint that the doctors are actually 
caring for their patients will be met with scorn and moral outrage. <laughs> Protests on Mars, you know. Of course, the Martians respond this way out of a failure to understand the wider context concerning the human condition. They're unaware that patients arrive at the hospital with pre-existing conditions that require serious, life-saving medical attention and that without the relevant medical procedures, the patients will likely die. Nor do the poor Martians know that the vast majority of patients recover from these procedures and go on to live full, healthy lives outside of the hospital. Likewise, how might pain and hardship serve God's redemptive purposes for wayward creatures? For all we know, allowing those apart from Christ to experience the fragility and severity of the human condition in this way may be the most powerful means at God's disposal to shake them out of their deep-seated self-reliance and cultivate a greater openness to receiving the lasting treatment for their life-threatening condition. So if you're not a Christian, maybe that's one of the reasons that God lets you experience the brokenness of this world is to wake you up to a much bigger problem that only he can rescue you from. One reason God allows Christians to experience painful severity is that it serves a redemptive, sanctifying role. All of God's wayward creatures should expect God's redemptive love to be severe, he writes, to actively oppose all obstacles that hinder deeper loving union with God and with others. Now, this is a hard truth that God tears to heal. But it's meant to be a comfort to us because it can be tempting to think in our moments of suffering, does God just love me less than everyone else? Why can't my life be like so-and-so's? They seem to have a great life. But could it be that the hardships that you endure are not the absence of God's love, but the very evidence of it? He loves you too much to let your greed or your pride or your selfishness fester and he will tear it off with his claws if he has to. So then Hosea invites Israel and invites us not to recoil from God's painful advances, but to return to him, to press into him, to go towards him when we suffer. Back to chapter 6, verse 1. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So this is Hosea's call to God's wayward people. Return to God. Despite all their sins, God wants them back. He's ready to revive them in a short span of time. Only two days, he will restore us. So let's press toward him. He will surely receive us, Hosea says. How can you be sure of that? How can you be sure that he'll receive you? How do you know that his claws actually bear the wounds of love and not the wounds of wrath. How do you know that God's heart towards you is not callous, that he's not just tearing and ripping just for the fun of watching you suffer, that he's not out to get you, that you haven't sinned your way out of his favor? Hosea says God tears only to heal, 
But how can you know that? We have something far more certain than Hosea or ancient Israel had. We have God's ultimate response to our spiritual infidelity and rebellion. We have the hidden solution to the conundrum of how God can both judge our sin and yet embrace our souls. You see, on the cross, Jesus Christ was truly torn, truly struck down for us. I mean, when you read the graphic, horrid punishments predicted for Israel given in Hosea chapter 2, where she would be stripped naked, parched, thirsty, and shamed, this is exactly what Christ went through as he went to the cross. He was treated as the harlot so that we might be accepted as the pure and faithful bride. I mean, what if, like Israel, your secret tapes, your unseen conversations, your unheard thoughts, actions, and words were replayed for all of us to hear? If you had to sit and rewatch the moments of your life that you're least proud of play out in front of a grand jury. I mean, this recording does exist, you know. It's not like anything we do in this life is actually a secret. What would God's ruling on your life be? Colossians 2 verse 14 says that God has taken that record of sin and placed it on Jesus instead of you. And this makes all the difference when you suffer now. How can you know that in your pain today, God is still for you? Well, seeing Christ wounded in your place This is what heals our harlot hearts and causes us to see how much better he is than any other lover. Seeing Christ stripped for you, strips you of your pride and finally turns your heart to him in steadfast love. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. You see, Jesus Christ was stricken and shamed in our place. And after two days, he rose again on the third day so that all who trust in him could know for certain that any wounds they receive in this life are only ever the wounds of love. Let's pray. So Lord, this is each of us If you were to trot out the charges against us, they would be overwhelming. Each of us are weary and wounded sinners. And yet this is not meant to keep us from the embrace of your love. For you were wounded for us that we might know your heart for us. So if if we have strayed from you, even this week, God, if we have run from you or been unfaithful to you, which all of us have in, in one way or another, then would you draw us near again today with full assurance that you will receive us